As a Blue Cross Medicare member, you can expect access to care as soon as you need it. Just call our customer service team for the help and information you need. You can also schedule appointments for checkups or routine care at a time that's convenient for you. With Blue Cross, it's easy to get the care, tests, or treatment you need whenever you need them. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. Confidence comes with every card. To learn more, visit bcbsm.com slash senior care. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello, and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwith Theogene. And I'm your other co-host, Brent J. Cohen. Yes, welcome. Um, tomorrow is Earth Day. Activists, policymakers, and organizations throughout the country are using this week to draw attention to the fight against climate change and for environmental justice. Young people have, been, have long been leaders in this movement, and their desire for action on the climate crisis likely contributed to the high youth voter turnout we saw in November of 2020 elections. Post-inauguration, the Biden administration has taken several steps over the last few months to reinstate key environmental protections and work towards environmental justice. To talk more about environmental justice and what it would mean for different communities on the front lines of the climate crisis, we are joined today by our first expert guest, Osa Ahmed, a senior policy analyst with the Center for American Progress's Women's Initiative. Thank you for joining us, Osa. Great to be your head with. Thank you for having me. Great. So let's jump to it. Um, to start us off, Osa, can you tell us a little bit about your role with the Women's Initiative at CAP and what you're currently focused on? Sure, yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a senior policy analyst for women's health and rights at CAP. Um, I focus on um, a suite of issues. Our team is you know, very much plugged into all things women's health and rights, as well as uh, women's economic security. Um, but I uh, focus um, a lot on access to birth control, um, you know, expanding coverage and just ensuring that people are able to access the birth control that they need. Uh, also focus on maternal health. Uh, that is something that is um, a really big topic uh, today, uh, you know, in considering our maternal mortality crisis, um, as well as uh, focusing on the intersection of all these issues with climate and climate change, which I know is the topic that we'll be talking about today. Yeah, thank you. Um, at a high level, also, what is environmental justice and how is it connected to gender justice? Yeah, and so th this is a topic that I... Um, 
you know, we've been at CAP and interested in drawing like these, inter like um, making clear this intersection and explaining more from like a narrative standpoint, what it means, and then diving into some of the policy solutions. And so at a high level, um, environmental justice and the way it's connected to gender justice uh, is, is it's really framed in in social justice, ultimately. Environmental justice is focused on ensuring that people can have access to clean air, clean water. They can live on land um, that, that you know, uh, promotes their health. They can live in a clean environment. And that's something that um, systemically, uh, certain communities, particularly black and brown communities and indigenous communities have not had access to for for decades, for as long as this, um, as, as long as they have been in this country. Uh, similarly, with reproductive justice and gender justice, um, well, RJ specifically is focused on um, all of the intersecting oppressions that keep certain people from being able to raise their children in safe environments and to parent with dignity. And so when you think about these two things um, together, if you are not able to uh, live in a, a healthy environment, whether that's you know um, breathing in clean air, drinking uh, clean water, or if you live in an environment that is not safe, uh, that will impact your ability to uh, raise your children and to take care of yourself um, uh, in, in your own well-being. And so this is all grounded in social justice. Got it. Thanks, Osa. Yeah. And so, so tomorrow, um, you're releasing an issue brief on the specific mm -hmm. connection between improving maternal health and addressing the climate crisis. Yeah. So sort of similar to the, 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 to the high level that you just offered, can you, can you walk us through some of your findings um, related to that issue brief? Sure. Yeah. And so, yeah, as you said, um, you know, to kind of um, celebrate Earth Day, of course, you know, this is a topic that is uh, difficult to, to, to talk about and think about. Uh, climate change is already such an overwhelming um, sort of uh, reality that we're all having to face. And then bringing in the maternal health crisis is, is, is doubly difficult. But um, this brief really talks about both the um, intersection between maternal health and climate change, and then some of the policy solutions that we encourage federal and state policymakers to use. Um, and so uh, just thinking about the intersection of maternal health and climate change, uh, there has been um, a, a good amount of research at this point that looks at what those effects are. And so it, it um, kind of looks at it from the point of, for example, extreme heat. Uh, extreme heat has some very adverse effects on maternal health. Um, it has been linked to preterm birth. Um, uh, due to certain like physiological um, impacts on the mother, and then of course the downstream impacts on the infant or in the fetus, and then you know when the um, um, and later in um, infant morbidity and mortality. <clears throat> um, similarly, air pollution can have some um, pretty bad effects on maternal health, preterm birth, low birth weight, stillbirth. Um, there was even a study um, that looked at uh, a California coal power plant, and in the 10 years after that plant closed, there was a 27% reduction in the rate of preterm births. So you can see that there are clear connections between some of these really negative environmental conditions and what ultimately happens to maternal and infant health outcomes. I'll even say around na natural disasters, you know, we've been seeing that when it comes to the increasing frequency or um, intensity of some of these hurricanes and flooding that we've been experiencing, uh, studies have shown that women who are exposed to hurricanes, um, uh, for instance, take Hurricane Katrina, there have been some um, negative maternal health, health outcomes that have um, resulted from that. 
um, including post-traumatic stress disorder and other um, other poor um, uh, um, other impacts on um, on low low birth weight and preterm birth, as I mentioned. So that's a lot. There are a lot of really um, concerning uh, um, connections between maternal health and climate change. And that's why um, I wrote this brief. I think that this brief is incredibly important um, to talk about what we can do because, you know, of course we can talk all day long about what are all the problems, but without solutions, it doesn't really mean, it doesn't mean uh, as, as much as it could. And so, um, uh, basically, just to give a high level, you know, if anyone's interested, you're welcome to read the, the brief in its entirety. Um, but I think the most important thing is to target resources to pregnant and postpartum people who live in some of these climate affected areas. Um, I'll say that the um, the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act, which was introduced in Congress um, earlier this year, includes a bill called the Protecting Moms and Babies Against Climate Change Act. And one of its provisions is doing just this, which is to um, designate areas in the country that um, are set to experience disproportionate, uh, disproportionate climate change and to ensure that the pregnant and postpartum people living there can get the resources and supports that they need so they can um, you know, deal with the, um, the coming changes, whether it's extreme heat, air pollution and the like. Um, so yeah, so that's just one of the uh, five policy solutions that I have in, in the brief. That's awesome. I love how it's like basically a proactive bill. Like we're trying to prepare for the climate crisis instead of being reactive and trying to find resources for people. And I would I would just add to that point. I mean, I think it is really important that we're uh, proactive because we've seen time and again when we uh, rely on, um, you know, when when we rely on others to take care of the issues for us, and I'm specifically thinking about. Um, um, communities of color, um, communities of color then get left behind because they're never really the priority. Um, I mean, thankfully, we have bills like the Momnibus that do make uh, uh, black and brown people the, the priority. But um, I still think that, you know, we need these kind of proactive agendas so that we can take the bull by the horns and make sure that the people who are going to be most impacted are the ones that are centered in the solutions. Absolutely. Um, do you do you think also, that this connection between maternal health and climate change might um, sort of enter more, get centered more in the conversation overall as we um, continue to see this connection and as writings like the one that you have coming out tomorrow uh, continue to be published? Um, I, I, that is very much my hope. I, I you know, um, building off of the legislation, like I mentioned, as well as uh, us and other groups putting out material on this connection, I think will only make it that future policy and legislative solutions will will tackle this problem because it's not going to go away. We have to do something about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, folks, you're listening here to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show with Edward Theogene and Brent J. Cohen. And we are talking with Osip Ahmed about the connection between reproductive justice and climate change. We'll be right back after this break. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets.
Hello, and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm your other co-host, Adwith Theogene. And we are talking right now with Osib Ahmed, uh, excuse me, Osib Ahmed, a senior policy analyst with the Center for American Progress Women's Initiative. And we are talking about the intersection of reproductive justice and climate justice or environmental justice. Um, Osib, thanks for coming back with us. Yeah, great to be back with y'all. So just before break, you had lifted up one of the policy recommendations that's, um, that is in your forthcoming issue brief that'll be released tomorrow on Earth Day. Um, and wondering if there are other uh, sort of policy recommendations that you have within that brief or that you might wanna, that you might wanna highlight for our listeners. Yeah, thanks. Um, they're, they're actually, like I mentioned, there's five of them, um, and I was only able to dive into one, but um, there are a couple others that I think are important to raise. Um, one of them is uh, the importance of improving the quality and resiliency of housing and local infrastructure. Of course, you know, by doing this, this isn't just going to benefit pregnant and postpartum people. This is to everyone's benefit. But as I mentioned before, uh, issues around air pollution and extreme heat have really negative effects on maternal health. And so doing this would be important. Um, it's also an important uh strategy to start to tackle some of the racial disparities that we see in these health outcomes. Um, so looking, for instance, at um, uh, some of the disparities in, in heat uh, between um, not only between urban and rural or other outlying um, uh, environments, but also even within cities as a result of um, redlining and other sort of um, uh, tactics, urban designing and, and urban planning and the like that have put uh, communities of color within uh, neighborhoods that then have been disinvested and have not received uh, that have been um, where uh, like uh, abundance of highways and roads and other um, heat retaining surfaces have been placed. Uh, there's actually been studies that have shown that there is a difference in um, ambient temperatures within um, within cities. So between a historically redlined neighborhood and a non-redlined neighborhood, you actually have heat differences. And so when you think about the, the health implications of that, uh, that and, and, and the impacts on maternal health as well, it's really important that we do tackle issues around local infrastructure and extreme heat. Um, jumping to another policy recommendation around um, and this is a bit more firmly in the repro space, but addressing access to family planning and contraceptives. Um, when a woman is able to plan when she has a pregnancy, again, studies have shown that uh, she has more positive maternal health outcomes as well as other social and economic benefits. Um, and then conversely, uh, other studies have shown that in the wake of climate disasters, women actually have a harder time accessing contraceptives and there's even racial disparities within that. So, um, you know, we recommend in the brief that uh, uh, that federal and state policymakers work work to improve access to family planning. Uh, they can do that by strengthening the Title X program, which was unfortunately severely undermined by the Trump administration through the domestic ag rule, as well as work to improve birth control access by um, uh, there's a number of different tactics, uh, eliminating medical management techniques, um, you know, ensuring that um, women can access 12 month supply and the like. So there's a lot of uh, different things in this brief and uh, each of them is really important to getting at, like I said, the issue of uh, maternal health being negatively impacted by climate change. Thank you. That's like really interesting when you were talking about the infrastructure and heat because as someone mm -hmm. who's from South Florida, I've definitely seen 
And, you know, 95, the way it's built in Miami was basically a tool of, of redlining, right? Pushing black communities out of the way. And now um, they're better locations closer to the beach and stuff like that. And people want to move in. So there's just this mix of like gentrification, climate injustice, um, and all of these things happening. So I think it's great that this brief sort of outlines how all like how we can navigate and respond to that in a way that centers frontline communities and addresses um, maternal health needs. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I'll just add quickly that um, this isn't quite in the brief, but um, there are issues around uh, climate gentrification as well. Thinking about how when you um, uh, when you think about real estate developers and others who are interested in land, um, and uh, they're they're starting to factor in issues such as coastal flooding and uh, working to move uh, some of their um, development projects to areas that do will not experience the flooding. And oftentimes, uh, for instance, in Florida, actually in Miami, I know there's issues around developers moving into uh, um, communities of color and working to displace. Um, um, uh, you know, residents of those communities so they can build build more resilient infrastructure for their own clients. And so I think that this is you know a, a long term and really um, uh, a challenging problem and one that like um, as Brian was saying before, we have to be very um, proactive about and, and tackle now. So I, you know, I think um, for folks who might be listening at home and and especially for some who um, you know might be might be hearing some of this connection for the first time or, or hearing new information about it, do you have, do you have recommendations for how people can get involved in thinking about, you know, where would you recommend them getting started? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And and one thing I will say is this is a fairly um, new area um, in terms of um, uh, more in the advocacy sphere, um, which is why I think a lot of people haven't really heard much about it. Um, but uh, I would say, you know, to, to kind of get started, I mean, of course, there's the CAP website and we do have some materials up, uh, up there about this uh, intersection. And then there are also some great partners, particularly black women led organizations uh, that we work closely with in the maternal health space. Um, that um, are also uh, making inroads in this area. So I would, of course, recommend Inner Own Voice, Black Mamas Matter Alliance, uh, the National Birth Equity Collaborative. There are a lot of really great organizations out there that I would recommend listeners uh, looking into. Um, so yeah. Great, thank you so much. So I'll, so I'll ask sort of a follow-up on that one, which is, is there anything that people should be calling their representatives and asking for right now? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I would first and foremost say, uh, you know, I've mentioned the Momnibus as well as the Protecting Moms and Babies Against Climate Change Act. So um, I think calling your representatives and talking about not just those bills, but the issues that are contained within those bills and um, and asking uh, legislators who, um, you know, may or may not support the bill, but support provisions within the bills or just the ideas contained in them to push them forward because we need these solutions. We need solutions that are going to make sure that um, pregnant and postpartum people, particularly those in communities of color, are protected, uh, that we're building in these solutions now and not waiting for the problem to arise and then having these sort of piecemeal haphazard um, approaches. So I would say reaching out to your representatives and just and, and telling them we need this now. We need these solutions right now. Got it. Got it. Oh, so we have just a couple seconds left here. Can you tell us quickly where folks can find more information um, about your work? 
Sure. If you go to the CAP website, um, you know, if you just look me up and my team as well, we have a lot of information about this and other topics related to women's health and rights. You can also find me on Twitter at Asif Ahmed. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Osip. That's it for this segment. But after this break, we will be back on with another guest who is an activist in the environmental justice space, Connor Kalaiki. We'll be back shortly. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Hi, and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover at the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwin Theogene. And I'm your other co-host, Brent J. Cohen. Great. Um, on today's Earth Day show, we're talking about environmental justice. We just heard from senior policy analyst Osub Ahmed about the connections between improving maternal health and addressing the climate crisis. Now, we're going to be speaking to New Deal for Youth Changemaker, Connor Kalahiki, about his work fighting for environmental justice for indigenous communities. Thank you for joining us, Connor. You there? Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Um, so Connor, can you tell us what is a New Deal for Youth and how did you come to this work? The New Deal for Youth is essentially um, a set of policy proposals that centers the needs for young people. Um, we're intentionally centering our needs because we're too often ignored, underestimated, and underserved by our representatives and leaders. And uh, we believe that we have to invest in the youth now in order to secure a sustainable and equitable future. Um, and I got involved in this work actually through the Center for Native American Youth as a Generation Indigenous Ambassador. Um, they put me into contact with the Center for Law and Social Policy, and um, that's how I got involved. Awesome. Um, so Connor, what does environmental justice mean to you and what does it represent? Yeah, um, EJ for me uh, um, means access to clean air, water, land, basically um, allowing everyone to have the opportunity to live a fulfilling and healthy life. Um, I feel like this movement is in direct response to um, our country's history with environmental racism um, from, uh, from urban planning to the desecration of uh, native land and sacred land. Um, this movement is the response to that. Thanks, Connor. So, so can you tell us a bit about like what communities are, are most impacted by an environmental racism and environmental injustice and and how are young people in particular affected by environmental injustice? Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for asking that. Um, <clears throat> so BIPOC and low-income communities are the most impacted uh, because we are bear a disproportionate um, environmental burden from climate change. So that comes in the form of lands being built um, by low-income communities and uh, like I was saying earlier, the desecration of sacred land. So the Kukia Imana movement was um, started in direct response to um, environmental racism and injustice because the Hawaii Supreme Court ruled to um, allow for the construction of a 30-meter telescope on our most sacred mountain, despite there being thousands of practitioners coming together to testify, saying, no, you cannot build on this land. Um, 
And I think that, <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, indigenous communities in particular are impacted because of our history with colonialism and industrialization. It has led to uh, the displacement of all of our peoples, the uh, dispossession of our culture and identity, um, and the continued oppression of our people. Um, so that's why I feel like indigenous peoples are the most impacted by EJ um, and our liberation is directly tied to solving this issue of environmental injustice and um, climate change. And to answer that second part of your question of how young people in particular are affected by environmental injustice, I personally feel like the climate crisis itself is an environmental justice issue because um, our generation is facing this existential threat, um, this environmental threat. And if we don't make a change now, our generation will be the one that has to face mass migrations, food, water shortages, rising temperatures, freezing temperatures, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I think this past year was really an indicator of how our future will look if we don't um, make that change now. Um, so more wildfires, more severe weather, et cetera. Totally agree with that, Connor. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about like what work you're specifically doing to advance environmental justice in your community? Yeah, for sure. Um, so aside from the New Deal for Youth, I helped to co-found a group called Helu Kanaka. Um, we're currently undergoing a complete restructuring, um, but we're trying to do more environmental justice work and we're going to build that out this summer. So we want to support current movements in Hawaii, like the Kukia'i Kahuku movement, which was in response to the construction of windmills in um, one of the local communities. Um, and then we also want to start following state legislation that relates to environmental justice in some meaningful way, whether it has to do with uh, land or water rights, um, you know, Hawaiian culture, our ability to practice our culture, etc. Um, so we're really trying to focus on Native Hawaiian youth rights as a means of environmental justice. That's a great, um, I think it's great that you're building that connection between governance and government and um, how to find climate justice. Because I do think that for the climate crisis, as massive as it is, we need all levels of government to be involved in the response to this. Um, we recently, are, we're going to be releasing in a piece, a Generation Progress website that basically also draws a connection between the For the People Act, um, which is democracy reform bill, and the climate uh, justice as like a means. So in order to see the progress that we want to see on climate, we also need like a fully functioning democracy. So I love how your group is also focused on looking at state level solutions and um, legislation that could possibly be helpful to find an answer. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, just a real quick note off that, that's actually one of the approaches with the New Deal for Youth is trying to give power back to the community um, so that we can decide how to best address our specific climate issues. Um, and we're trying to, you know, over the course of these upcoming months, uh, create policy proposals to see what that would look like. But I completely agree. We need um, a just democracy system in order for that to work. Yeah, totally agree. And I love how you're all really focused on young people too. We definitely believe that young people are the wave and you need to get in there. Um, one last question for you, Connor. 
how does environmental uh, justice intersect with economic justice? Earlier today, we sort of like talked about how climate justice, environmental justice, and reproductive justice are all connected. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about investment in green economy, jobs for young people, um, and all of that, and how that is also connected to economic justice? Yeah, I could speak a, a, a bit about this. Um, so to tie it into what I was touching on earlier, um, BIPOC and low-income communities are disproportionately bearing this the burden of this climate crisis. Um, and one specific example of this that um, I'm actually trying to do some work on in uh, Rhode Island is um, with rising temperatures in the Northeast, there's been more abnormally hot days in the summer, which has led to um, an increase in heat-related injuries and hospitalizations. And um, especially during the pandemic, there have been, um, there's been like a decrease in access to cooling centers, specifically for BIPOC and low-income communities, um, because there's also a lack of air conditioning units um, in these areas. So, you know, climate, uh, environmental justice has uh, many overlaps with economic justice. You know, how can we serve our communities um, that are marginalized? And um, that's kind of like the work that we're trying to do in the upcoming months. Um, we're still, you know, putting together those policy proposals and solutions. Uh, we currently only have a list of demands, but we are working to um, flesh out what quality green jobs and training would look like and educational opportunities for our communities. Uh, thanks. So we'll be right back after this break with more on the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Hello, and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwith Theogene. And I'm your other co-host, Brent J. Cohen. Awesome. We are joined, we're coming back and talking about Earth Day and environmental justice. We are joined with Connor Kalahiki, Thank you for joining us again, Connor. Thank you for having me. Um, Connor, I you've talked a little bit about like indigenous communities, and I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about why it's important that we center indigenous communities in environmentalism. Thank you for that question. Um, you know, I truly believe that there is no environmental justice without indigenous liberation um, from our tumultuous history with colonization and um, just the colonial state and the continued oppression of indigenous peoples, not only nationally, but globally, I feel like um, there needs to be a reckoning um, and a response um, that leads to land back for indigenous peoples. Um, but not only that, I believe that um, indigenous peoples' uh, life ways and knowledge systems can be used to augment current environmental management for specific areas. Um, so I'll, a, an example I can provide is actually in Hawaii. Um, in ancient Hawaii, there 
was a system called Ahupua'a. They're basically land divisions that ran from the mountain to the sea that followed a stream or a river. Um, but it was an extremely efficient way to um, care for a growing population because in the mountains you had all the materials you needed to build. Um, there was uh, wetlands to grow uh, kalo and lo'i. So kalo is taro and lo'i are taro patches. And then Oceanside, there were local ia or um, fish ponds that provided protein for the population. It was an extremely efficient system. And I feel like um, indigenous, and I feel like it's a perfect case study for um, just indigenous knowledge systems in general and wisdom. Um, and I feel like the next step for environmentalism is to acknowledge um, just the knowledge that lies within our communities because um, Western knowledge systems have um, only delegitimized our people's ways of living. And um, only recently have we seen um, a turnaround where, um, you know, the scientific community is starting to turn towards um, indigenous practitioners for help with different environmental issues. So an example of this is in California with uh, cultural burnings of forests. Um, it was a practice that was, um, that actually promoted uh, the health of the forest. And um, <clears throat> there was a Stanford study that proved that it actually does help. Um, so I feel like because of our history and because of the knowledge that we possess from living on this land for thousands of years, um, our communities need to be centered in environmentalism moving forward. Thanks so much for sharing, Connor. Um, I think, yeah, that sounds like a really good uh, way to move forward. Um, what is the path forward for some of these solutions that you've also talked about throughout our conversation? Who has power to make these solutions a reality? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, kind of to touch on a little bit what, of what we talked about earlier, we really want to build power within our communities. Um, but we are also acknowledged that we need support federally. So uh, Biden actually included provisions for environmental justice in his proposed budget. Um, so some things that we want to happen as a New Deal for Youth is, um, you know, we, we need to make sure that this provision actually goes through. Um, and then, you know, if this budget is approved and does go through, we need to make sure we can keep our administration accountable for making sure that these investments are going into the community and are um, leading to proper communication with and collaboration with our communities. Um, and I feel like that will be the like next steps. Absolutely. And so for folks who um, might be at home listening to this and are, are really motivated to take, to take action um, today or tomorrow on Earth Day, where would you recommend that they go to get started? Um, well, I'd say call your state or congressional reps and ask them to support the Green New Deal because it was just um, reintroduced. Um, that's a great place to start. And I guess the other thing that you could start doing is um, read. There is a uh, new book that just came out from the Red Nation called The Red Deal, which 
Um, if you don't know what the Red Deal is, it's basically an extension of the Green New Deal, but it centers um, indigenous liberation and just takes it a step further than the Green New Deal. So I definitely recommend reading that resource. And um, if you can, donate to local or national environmental justice organizations, um, some national orgs that I know of and highly recommend are the Indigenous Environmental Network and the Climate Justice Alliance. Um, their work with Thrive, which was which is an um, an agenda, an environmental justice agenda uh, that stands for Transform, Heal, and Renew by Investing in a Vibrant Economy, um, is very progressive. It's transitioning um, away from relief and towards recovery. Um, so read up on that as well. And um, yeah, I think that those are some great, great places to start. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, the um, organizations you mentioned have you know, tons of resources and information online in addition to the work that you've been talking about already, Connor. And so I would, would absolutely recommend that folks get acquainted there. Where can people find more or go to learn more about the work um, that you're doing in, in your work with a, a New Deal for Youth? Yeah, so if you're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you can follow the New Deal for Youth at New Deal for Youth, and the four is the number four. And then for my personal work, you can follow me at CJ Kalahiki on Instagram. Instagram is where it's at. <laughs> um, that's really awesome. Thank you so much, Connor. Uh, just wanted to also highlight, too, that Generation Progress has a couple of tools and resources on our website if anyone's interested. We have an action tool um, that basically encourages our government to invest in climate. We've already seen a couple of actions happen that you've uh, talked about, too, Connor, about the Biden administration centering environmental justice, as well as um, the new head of EPA, I think, also released a statement saying that they were looking to center environmental justice throughout all of their work. Um, but that's just the beginning place and a good start. So if you wanna reach out to your representative, you can check out Generation Progress's um, demand and economic recovery package that prioritizes communities hit by climate change, um, which is just saying that we need more money and more investment and more centering. And we also have a list of climate priorities if folks wanna check that out as well and get to know some of the ways that our government can take action um, to support the addressing the climate crisis so you can check that out on our website as well just to learn more and be better informed um connor the book that you talked about the red deal uh are there any like top lines from that that make it different from the green new deal or the new deal for youth um well it takes it for the green new yeah the green new deal um it takes it a step further by centering indigenous communities um so uh, a quote that, I've, that I love from the book is, the soundest environmental policy for a planet teetering on the brink of total ecological collapse is land back, it's decolonization or extinction. So it's very radical and um, very progressive in that way. But for the New Deal for Youth, we're trying to incorporate some of these ideas into our environmental justice framework. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, Absolutely appreciate you taking time to chat with us, Connor, and really talk to us about not just the importance of, you know, focusing on environmental justice, but also 
just the critical importance of centering indigenous communities um, and other communities most impacted, but particularly the indigenous community in our approach to addressing uh, climate and getting us to a state of environmental justice. I think the point is so salient because it really speaks to foundational environmental injustice that um, you know dates back to the to to before the start of this country um, and continues to be pervasive throughout. And so, really appreciate you centering this conversation and 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 bringing it to everyone's attention the importance of centering the work overall um, right there in terms of centering indigenous communities. So, really appreciate that, um, Connor. So uh, that is that is all the time we have for today. Thanks to today's guests, Osub Ahmed and Connor Kalahiki, our producer, Mark Grimaldi, our communications manager, Emily Leach, and to all of our listeners. Please make sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at GenProgress and check out our work on the climate crisis by visiting GenProgress.org. Thank you. Want to save 17 gallons of fuel every thousand miles? You can with the powerful combination of Michelin X1 tires and the Michelin Energy Guard aerodynamic solution on your truck. Michelin X1 tires can reduce rolling resistance up to 30% for more fuel savings. And Michelin Energy Guard helps you control airflow for lower costs per mile. Go to business.michelinman.com slash fuel saver for details and start saving today.